Welcome to episode six of the Stageworthy podcast. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. On Stageworthy, I interview people who make theater to find out what makes them do what they do. My guest is Richard Bone, an actor and director from Toronto. His work has taken him to every province and territory in Canada. He's performed plays in both official languages. He's directed everything from Shakespeare to solo plays to the physical performance style of Keystone Theater. Over the last few years, he's also been teaching acting. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at stageworthypodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, and consider leaving a comment or rating. That's the proper technique, yeah. isn't it? Of course. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's the proper technique, but that's how I do it here. Okay. Good. Um, so Richard <laughs> Bone, yes, thank you, there. Richard Bone. Um, thanks for coming on. Um, I guess a place to start would be, and one of the things that I'm always interested in when I sit down with people is, why did you choose theater? Wow, I, I don't feel like. Uh, there was an actual conscious choice for theater. I feel like theater chose me. Do you do you remember what drew you to it? Um, n- not something that I can really put my finger on, but uh, I knew from the earliest ages that I could remember that I wanted to be an actor. Um, and at first I thought that might have meant being a comedian. Rich Little was sort of my hero. His name was Richard, and his last name was Little, and I was Richard, and I was Little. So I thought, okay, I could be an impressionist or a comedian, <laughs> and you know, I could be Rich Little. Um, and I would, you know, make shows at school during recess and lunch hour. I'd get my classmates to do shows that I'd written about janitors and you know the important things in school life. But I had never seen a play because I was in a small town. Um, so I, I just knew I wanted to be an actor and it wasn't until I got into theater school that I saw my first play. And I remember even talking to like one of my profs when I was at Ryerson, which is the first school I went to, uh, he was saying, so what sort of stuff do you want to do? And I said, I want to be in TV. And he asked why. And I said, well, I, I really like the idea of a group of people getting together and working on something as a team and really caring about the product that they come up with. And he said, you don't want to do TV, you want to do theater. And I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah, I wanted to do theater. So that's become, it, I, I just kind of found a theater almost by accident. Did you, so you hadn't ever seen a play, did you, mm-hmm. did you, you but did, you had no concept of what that was? My concept was... of what a play was, was, you know, things that I'd seen on television. So in TV shows, you know, some one character might be involved in a play somewhere, mm-hmm. and so you'd see a televised version of someone working on a play, and yes, that was yeah. kind of my impression of it. Um, and to me, it was just a means to becoming an actor, which meant mm-hmm. TV and film. But that's not how it's yeah. turned out. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what the first play that you saw was? I don't remember the title of it, but I do remember that there was full frontal nudity. 
And I was 17 years old mm-hmm. at the time, and I thought, okay, theater's pretty cool. And that was that was at theater school, or that was still That was, no, because uh, I moved to Toronto to go to theater school. Mm-hmm. And then I saw my first play at uh, Avenue Road in Bloor in Toronto. Hmm. But I was already a theater student by then. Okay. Uh, did, was were, were your teachers aware? Because I find that I think that it's sort of like <laughs> one of those things that would be like the dirty secret. Like, no, they knew uh, uh, at my audition for Ryerson. Um, we had we had to, it was a group audition. We all had to sit in a in a row, mm-hmm. and I was at the very end of my row, and everyone else said their little blurb about who they were and what they had done, and mm-hmm. they'd done all kinds of theater and TV, and had resumes and. And I was at the end of the line, and I was like, well, man, I'm just a kid from some little town in northwestern Quebec, and I've never even seen a play, but mm. I want to be an actor, and I hope you can teach me how. And they, mm. I guess, thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So they brought me in. Or I, the other theory I have is that it was a clerical error, and I really <laughs> wasn't supposed to get into the program, but I did by mistake, and... and They've been trying to live that down ever since. I wonder how many of us have have wondered because I mean, <laughs> if you want to talk about the imposter syndrome, everybody has that, and I struggle yeah. with that all the time. It's always that that, that okay, so I'm here because somebody like made when like put an X when they should have put something else or whatever. Yeah, I figure a lot of what I get is because my last name starts with the letter B, so it's really close it's to the no, beginning the of the list. list. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. I'm like the third person they call, and I happen to be available, and so. So you went from Ryerson. You spent one year. Yeah, Ryerson. not quite a full year. I dropped out before the year was done. And that that, that program didn't didn't suit you. That didn't didn't it didn't suit me. I didn't actually. I don't know that I was aware of how much it didn't suit me mm. at the time. I dropped out mostly for financial reasons because mm. I had uh, I'd been hired to be in my first professional play at Casaloma, mm. so I was getting a paycheck to be an actor. I thought, well, if I'm getting a paycheck to be an actor, why do I need to be in theater school? Right. Uh, and paying and being broke and being frustrated because I, I knew that I could feel that it wasn't working, mm-hmm. but I didn't know why. And so I, I dropped out of theater school and did the play for money and then thought, I'm going to be an actor now and quickly found out that that wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, gave it all up for about a year and then went, came back to Toronto again and... Uh, and that's when I went to George Brown and did that program. So you, when you say you gave it up, were you like, I'm done with this acting thing, it's not working? Done with the acting thing yeah. altogether. I had I had been to too many uh, auditions that were, frankly, abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, like there were, it was it was a, a different time. I think there were. I I suspect that it still exists now. But at the time, there were a lot of people who were really abusive, mm-hmm. and I had seen too many. I'd been to too many auditions where the directors were not really doing not not really making art right uh but they were just abusing young people and i was a young person who was abusable at the time and um there was one particular incident and i said that's it no more of this i went back to val d'or went back to high school and decided i was going to be an aerospace engineer and uh by the time i had finished my year back in high school i had determined that i was going to be in go back to the theater did anything happen in particular that, that brought you back to it that made you... Well, I didn't get into the aerospace engineering program at the Royal Military College, okay. which is what I was my plan. Uh-huh. I was going to shoot big. I was going to be an astronaut. Um, and I, uh, they wouldn't accept my new marks. I went back to high school to upgrade because my previous marks weren't good enough. Uh, and they wouldn't take my new, my new grades. And by the time I got the rejection letter, I had already determined that 
like I went back to high school and I spent all of my time creating a drama club mm -hmm. and writing plays and putting on plays um, not doing any of my other homework that was just sort of secondary so my focus really was making theater it wasn't yeah. going to space so by the time I got the rejection letter my friends were like wow you're so lucky you didn't get into that program <laughs> Did you think that you were lucky not getting into that program? Not immediately. My immediate, my immediate sense was, oh, wow, I've been rejected. This is terrible. Yeah. Uh, but then as soon as I told my friends and they were like bouncing off the walls, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe this is probably best. <laughs> maybe I don't yeah. belong in the military. Yeah. Um, was there anything in particular that, that, brought, that took you, that attracted you to George Brown as a school? Or was it? Uh, I had met some people who were at George Brown. Um, in previous years, mm -hmm. like the, the couple of years prior to my auditioning. Uh, so I, yeah, I just started talking to people who were there. Mm -hmm. There was a, a sense of optimism about that program. And I, I, I felt like it was on the upswing at, the, at that mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. I think that turned out to be true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then you, you, finished, you finished theater school. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I know you've, you also did some directing. Pretty soon out of theater school, I think. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, when I was when I was in school, one thing that I noticed was that a lot of my classmates would ask me to look at their work, um, and I don't think it's because I was a better student than they were, but I think it's because I had a certain because I, I take great pleasure in actors doing their work well. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, there, there's. So there's like a lack of professional jealousy for me among other actors. I don't resent other actors doing well. Mm -hmm. I like it yeah. and I thrive on it. So if a classmate is going to ask a classmate to look at their work, they want it, they want it to be someone who's not going to be competitive with them, but someone who's going to encourage them. Um, so already I was starting to flex that muscle a little bit of like, yeah. hey, I want to look at your work and I want to help you make your work as good as it can be. And that was just how I felt about everyone's work. So I looked at a lot of people's, a lot of my classmates' work. And then in my third year, uh, I was asked to direct one scene in one of our shows. We did a collection of Shakespeare scenes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did the French scene from Henry V. Right. And I was asked to direct that and had a really good time doing that. And then someone else asked me to direct their vocal mask. I put direct in quotation course, marks because yeah. you don't direct a vocal mask, really. No. It's a self-created piece. But I was sort of an outside eye on one of those, and that was that seemed to go really well. So as soon as I got out of school, directing just seemed like another part of the same thing for me. Yeah. So yeah, I I, I started pretty much right out of school. I was acting and directing. Mm -hmm. So you, <coughs> excuse me, I know that that you made. You, you did some time in Toronto, and then you had an opportunity to go to Edmonton. Yeah. Um, and did you go to Edmonton for, was there a, uh, an acting gig right if you were in Edmonton? <clears throat> well, the, f the first time, I went to Edmonton a couple times. The first time, um, I, I did a tour in shopping malls, mm -hmm. and one of the stops we had was in Edmonton. And on that tour, every city that I went to, I contacted whoever I could in the local theater community. Mm -hmm. I said, hey, I'm an actor, and I'm on tour doing this show. It wasn't really a show. It was a corporate gig. Mm -hmm. But I said, I'm in town. I'm an actor. Can I audition for you? And the only place across the country that I was able to actually get an audition was 
a company called Theater Thalem in Edmonton. And Michael Clark was directing a show called The Rite of Venus. And Michael liked me and said, hey, if you want to come and do the show, you can. Uh, and I said, I'd like to. And he said, but you live in Toronto. Yeah. I said, yeah, but as soon as the tour is done, I'm unemployed. And I'd rather be unemployed doing a show living in Edmonton where the rent is cheaper than unemployed not doing a show and living in Toronto where the rent is higher. So right. off I went to Edmonton to be in a show and be unemployed mm. and gave it a shot there for about a year and really didn't make any money there and had to move back. Uh, and then many years later, I had another chance to go back out uh, to be an assistant director uh, to Diana LeBlanc mm -hmm. on a production of Three Tall Women. Um, now, so having been in both places, mm. do you have an impression of, at least at the time, because you haven't lived in Edmonton for a while, um, the difference between the theater communities there and in Toronto? Um, yeah, there's a huge difference. Uh, and I actually, I haven't lived in Edmonton in a long time, but I've been back many times, either doing touring shows or, or, or just visiting family. And so I'm still connected to some of the community there. So I do have a sense of it. Um, it's, uh, <clears throat> well, t t I'll describe Toronto first a little bit, because I also just finished a national tour where I went to every province and territory. And I, that was really interesting because I, I felt like there is a national community of theater. There's a, there's a theater community that is Canadian, that's coast to coast to coast. And I felt on a tour that I could be connected to a whole community that's national. Um, Toronto is kind of the exception from that. Toronto is a bit disconnected from the national community and Toronto is, uh, is kind of subdivided into a number of other communities. And maybe it's just because there's some, it's such a big population here. There are so many theater companies that that can happen whereas it can't in smaller communities. Mm -hmm. But Toronto does seem to get broken down in, in, into a number of various theater communities. And my worry about Toronto is that those communities are a bit too isolated. Mm -hmm. I wish that it was more of a community and less of a, a series of segregated pockets. Um, Just to jump in on that, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I've been around the, the theater scene in Toronto for, for a while, and I would agree that there isn't mm. really a community. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions that I've often asked myself is, what can you do about that? Like, what, how could Man. you build a community in Toronto? That's... <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't feel like I'm capable of building a theater community. Mm. What I can do and what I try to do is to connect with those various pockets. Uh, I haven't been as successful as I'd like to be well, doing I that. Mean, not necessarily, but what could, like, I mean, obviously you right. cannot yet perhaps <laughs> like, unite all of the, the different uh, 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 communities yeah. in Toronto, but... Um, in general, is, do, do you see there being anything that could unite those groups or bring them together at least? I don't know. I think there could be, but I, I think an effort, a conscious effort's got to be made mm. um, because things that are germane to the whole kind of theater community in Toronto, like the Dora Awards, yeah. for example, is a Toronto theater community event. Yes. 
but you also have the Canadian Comedy Awards, which are not local to Toronto, but they're, uh, they serve the, the comedy scene, for example. Mm -hmm. And the comedy scene and the theater scene um, don't interact nearly as much as I wish they would. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice to see the comedy world involved in the Dora Awards somehow, mm -hmm. or the Canadian Comedy Awards reach out to more theater theater that is funny can yeah. still be a Canadian, can still be comedy uh, similarly with the Toronto Clown Fest mm -hmm. which is actually I think more successful in bringing together various clown genres because mm -hmm. there are a lot of different types of clown yeah. and they all kind of come together for Clown Fest um, but they also all remain somewhat segregated as well mm -hmm. and if you are a Buffon performer you tend to be Buffon yeah and and, and there's not a lot of overlap between Buffon and Pachinko or um, Red Nose or, or, or and then there are probably a bunch that I don't even, I'm not even familiar with. Um, so efforts in those kind of festival situations or award ceremonies, efforts to consciously invite other parts of those communities or other communi sub-communities within the general theater world here, I think I think that could be done, mm. and I wish it were. Yeah. So getting back to the original question, mm. um, you were saying that you see the na you see a national community yeah. that Toronto's not a part of. Yeah. And in other places, like Edmonton, for example, there's a theater community. Is that there is? Yeah. There's a theater community, and again, there are there are some some sort of pockets within it. There's the uh, the improv community. And there's the classical theater community, but there's a lot more overlap, a lot more sharing. Hmm. You're a lot more likely to see the same performers in a Shakespeare play as you are in the improvised soap opera. Mm -hmm. Like you'll see the same people crossing lines more there than you would in, in a place like Toronto. Hmm. Um, and and Edmond, Edmonton's kind of one of the larger communities outside of Toronto nationally. It's got a big theater scene. And so there are a lot of aspects to it. If you go to a smaller community like St. John's, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, I think uh, the degree of overlap is even stronger because yeah. you have a smaller community that is engaged. And there it's not just theater, but it's theater, it's music, it's spoken word, it's visual arts, and they all kind of intersect. And there's a, a sense that uh, artists are are all artists and there's a there's more community among various types of artists mm -hmm. there than, than than you see in a place like Toronto. Because I I mean my experience in Edmonton is mm. purely around around fringe mm. and I don't know cuz you know there's I can see there being like a I'm familiar with sort of like the false community that arises <laughs> for the 10 days of a fringe festival and mm -hmm. then sort of after that's over we don't see each other for another year sort right. of thing but is does is fringe an integral part of that community in Edmonton or um, yeah I don't know how integral it is necessarily to the whole community if, if fringe didn't exist there'd still be a strong Edmonton mm -hmm. theater community but the Edmonton community the Edmonton theater community certainly um, thrives on that mm -hmm. the energy that comes at, at fringe uh, which is a little different than say Calgary where I found the the, the, the Calgary established theater community doesn't seem to dine at the same table as the fringe festival mm. there mm. Um, that that scene is a separate thing hmm. um, yeah in Edmonton or Winnipeg 
uh, it seems to be the big party, the big feast that the, mm. the theater community shares with the rest of the country or even the rest of the world because you have international people coming in. Um, but uh, maybe Calgary a little bit less so. Um, as a director, mm-hmm. what kind of, what, what draws you into a project? Like if you were to choose, if you had a couple of projects that you had to choose from, what mm-hmm. would draw you towards one or the other? Aside from a massive paycheck, <laughs> take that off the table. Well, since that's never really been a consideration, <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's how I imagine the experience of the project is going to be probably um so it's not material it's more about the the experience overall no because sometimes i'll go into a project not really knowing the material Mm. i'll just know the team and if it's a team that i want to share an experience with then i'm going to go i'll I'll jump into that and i'll Mm -hmm. go yeah let's find out what this project is uh sometimes it it's it's a project sometimes it's a a play and i'll read i'll read the play and i'll say this will be a great experience Mm. And I'll dive into it for that reason. Hmm. Um, but often you you don't know that going in. No. Well, you you can't because there's so many things mm-hmm. surrounding mm-hmm. a particular project. And especially if it's a create it's a if it's a project that will create a new piece, mm-hmm. you may be starting with very very little. Yeah. No. That's that's very true. And that can still draw me in. But usually in a case like that, it's a it's a it's either what I it's either the the fundamental key that is going to be driving the project the idea of the project or it's the idea of the group of of artists I'll be working with Mm -hmm. so it's it's there's a real range Mm -hmm. of things that might draw me into something Hmm. um speaking I mean you mentioned uh created projects projects Mm -hmm. that are created from scratch um and We've worked together uh, a number of times, mm-hmm. and most recently on some some projects with with Keystone Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I know the story, but <laughs> people listening might not know, probably don't know the story of, of of how Keystone Theater, who creates theater in the style of silent film, was actually how that came about. Yeah, that was a fun um, sort of discovery. Uh, and it, it it started because well, I had it, the earliest sort of germs of it come from a production that I worked on at the Shaw Festival called Chaplin, which was a play about Charlie Chaplin looking at uh, rushes from the great dictator and he gets involved in that. Um, so in order to work on that, I got to know uh, Chaplin a little bit and silent film generally a little bit. Then a year later, I was working on a production of the Comedy of Errors and wanted to create sort of um, inter. Is the I don't know how to pronounce the word inter, interstitial interstitial yeah. interstitial pieces within the overall play uh, that would kind of be related to the material within the play, but would be other forms of comedy to celebrate comedy through the centuries. And uh, one of those was a little Chaplin routine, mostly inspired by my recent experience working with a play about Chaplin. And Dana Fradkin played Chaplin in that little piece within that play. And, and it was just, it was a blast. We had a blast. It was so much fun creating something in a frame that was that liberating, in a frame that says, hey, be silly. Hey, you know, just go crazy. 
uh, don't worry about naturalism. Don't worry about um, deep motivations. Just really play. And, and it was really fun to work in that kind of scenario. So after that show was over, Dana and I had lunch and we were talking about how much fun we'd had and how cool it is to work on something like that and how freeing it is to work in in that kind of a frame. And I thought, well, why don't we do that again? Let's 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 do a whole play that's like that. Let's do a whole play that's like a Chaplin film. And then we just started. I, I made some phone calls. I called you, Phil, mm -hmm. and I called a bunch of other friends, uh, people who I thought I wanted to work with. Again, this is sort of talking about in that project, it was A, the idea, but mm -hmm. it was also B, the group of people that I could work of with. Of course, yeah. So yeah. I just uh, called the people I wanted to work with and said, let's get together and play. And we watched silent films and we talked about what we saw and we played and we created our own vocabulary for trying to take something that was um, on film and put it on stage. Mm -hmm. And through a long process, created a number of characters and then those characters created stories and then those stories became the Belle of Winnipeg which uh -huh. was our first show and and uh, and it was good so yeah. we did it again and again and again and we keep doing it and it was like I think it was three years of play before we got down to the business of yeah creating a show and yeah that was like watching films and, and exploring the, mm -hmm. the whole thing um, there's a certain I mean, directing something that doesn't have words, that's yeah. <laughs> um, something that, I mean, of course, it's a, a devised piece, so it doesn't yeah. necessarily have a script. Sometimes it doesn't even have an outline yet. Mm -hmm. But how do you go about directing something, especially when we so, as a society uh, and as a community, often think so much about words? How do you go about directing something that doesn't have that easy out? Or explaining what's happening or, or whatever. Yeah, right? That's a good way to put it because it is, I think that's the fundamental difference is you don't have the easy out. Um, ultimately, it's very similar mm -hmm. to directing anything else. Um, the only difference, it's probably more different for the actors than it is for me as the director because the actors don't have the text to hang their homework on. Um, but as a director, you don't, you don't use that, the text anyway, really. To direct the actors have that and then you support the actors and help them figure out where they are and what they're doing and, and how they're doing it so whether they have text or not as the director your job is actually pretty similar it's still about refining moments making sure that uh, transitions are clear uh, making sure that intentions are clear it's, it's still all kind of the same thing the biggest difference is that as you said you don't have the easy out of using the language, and I've had I've gone from doing the uh, the Keystone stuff, which is somewhat light in its tone, to also doing mime theater now, which is a little heavier in its tone. So that's been interesting to sort of go into a different genre within the non-speaking theater world. Mm. So uh, and and there again, I find it's it's similar. It's it I'm still directing a play. Yeah. Um, but I, I, but the actor doesn't have the language, and I think for the actor, it's probably more different. Biggest difference between silent film as a as a as a working genre and uh, mime. Oh, they're hugely different, actually. I, mean, I, I, I know, yeah. Like, like as, as a as a 
Not just as a form of theater. I mean, the, also... the, the most obvious difference is in mime, you don't have objects. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Keystone stuff, uh, and it depends who's directing the Keystone shows, but when I'm directing a Keystone show, I really try to avoid mime. I want an object to be an object, but I want the sound to be the, the thing that, that the audience is imagining. Mm-hmm. Uh, in mime, the audience is also imagining the objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a whole. That's another level of specificity in storytelling that, that's required. So it's actually more difficult, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but uh, aesthetically, it's very different. Uh, one of the biggest differences, too, in what I'm doing, and, and maybe there are places where I can change this, but when I'm doing the mime theater, it's solo work. There's just only one performer. Whereas with the Keystone stuff, there are, you know, scenes. Mm-hmm. So the interaction between characters is, is a very different dynamic than a solo piece. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, more challenging because uh, I have to manage where the focus shifts from one actor to another. And that's a, that's a bigger challenge with uh, non-speaking theater than it is with speaking theater. Mm-hmm. So that's one area where it's a little bit di- harder directing. Um, back to the Keystone yeah. thing, was there something that surprised you about directing in the genre like that you didn't expect? Or like, what was the biggest lesson that you took from... Uh, the first thing that comes to mind, I mean, there was, it, it was a big learning curve, like the whole thing, figuring out how to, A, how to create a play in that style, and then B, how to direct it. But uh, the biggest surprise I had, it took me a while to figure out what was happening, is that the actors uh, don't retain uh, as much when they don't have text as they do when they do have text. And I would notice from one rehearsal to another, the, the level of retention of detail from the previous rehearsal was, was lower than what I'd expected. And because I was working mostly with actors who I'd worked with before, I kind of knew everyone's individual working habits. Mm-hmm. And I knew that you know, from one rehearsal to another, uh, any given actor would come back with, with a certain amount of retention. Some things would slip and some things would grow. Um, but the amount of slippage was much, much higher from the same actors. So I knew that it was not, you know, these actors aren't doing their homework. And it took me a while to figure out that it, it, I think it's, it's because it's harder for the actors to do their homework. And again, it's where the acting yeah. in a silent film is, is more different than directing for it. Yeah. So for the actor, you can't go home and run your lines. No, no, so you that's have, very true. Yeah, so your your repetition of the material happens in a totally different way. Yeah. So your learning of the details of the performance are very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the biggest revelation. Mm. So I had to readjust my expectations rehearsal to rehearsal yeah. and the pace at which we developed. Um, for me, it was also a big learning opportunity because it was, I don't know if it was, it wasn't really the first time that I'd worked on developing a new play, but it was, it seemed like the biggest project of development that I'd ever partaken Well, in. the Belle of Winnipeg was kind of ambitious. It was to a go, big show. To decide that... <laughs> 
we did that backwards, to be honest, in my opinion. We sort of, instead right. of going the usual route and saying we're going to develop a thing and we'll do a little show, we'll do it at Fringe, yeah. and then we'll, you know, we'll work up to a big show... <laughs> We we went big instead of going home. Like we just like did like yeah. a huge so that, epic show. That was a conscious choice that I yeah. made as yeah. well. Was I didn't want because because I I knew that the project the, that the concept was ambitious, mm-hmm. mostly because I knew that it could be I could envision it being really bad. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to be really bad. I wanted it to be really good. Yeah. So I I said going in, if we're going to do this well, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a big commitment. And we cannot censor ourselves creatively. Mm-hmm. So the decision was made. That I made a very conscious decision early on. I'm not going to allow the impossibilities of production to edit my creativity. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go into this and I'm going to just be the creative person. I'm going to let my producer head go away for a while. And I'm just going to play and create and make and invent mm-hmm. and the producer side is going to catch up later right. and it's going to be really hard. And at that point we might have to lose some things. Yeah. And we did have to lose some things with some of the concepts that I had early on. We, we didn't, we didn't fulfill, uh, cause production wise we couldn't, but it did, it, it did <laughs> encourage us to create a big, huge two act play with 10 actors mm-hmm. plus a musician and, and tons of props. And it was just a big, massive, massive yeah. show, but that was partly by design. I wanted to go into it full mm-hmm. full on and not censor any creative idea. Yeah. Until we absolutely had to. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean I seem to remember that the most censorship happened at like the difference between the workshop and the final performance. Yeah. And all of the things that we had to lose <laughs> after the workshop, which was far too complicated. And that was actually the lesson that I took from it was oh. how simple it had to like any story had to be yeah well learning learning about the, like uh, the the plays in the style of silent film mm-hmm. um yeah really simplifying narrative became a big deal uh, I, I like to say that you know uh, joe takes a sip of milk can be a whole scene yes it's yeah. not a moment that's a whole event yeah and so that can be a five minute scene yeah in this style so if you have a very complicated narrative, you're going to be there for weeks. Yes. So yeah. the narrative's got to be really, really, really streamlined. Also, the audience doesn't have the benefit of hearing dialogue, explaining backstory, and things like that. Right. They have to. They only have what they can see in that moment. Right. But but what's interesting is in in most modern plays, the dialogue doesn't actually do a lot of storytelling. Mm. It sets up frameworks for subtext and the subtext and the interaction between characters actually carries a lot of the narrative component. Mm -hmm. So to take away dialogue actually doesn't take away that much of what we already have to work with Mm -hmm. to build narrative. We build narrative by having characters interact Mm -hmm. and that interaction carries with it a subtext and a story that the audience infers. Mm -hmm. They get it because the actors are doing their job, not because the writer is doing the job. Yeah. So this puts us right into connection with the actors doing their job, which I find really exciting because my whole, my whole thing, because I was, I'm an actor, director, theater maker, is to try to promote the actor as, as the, the main event. Mm-hmm. So when we do plays in the style of silent film, that, does, that puts the actor in that really prime position. Yeah. Actor is carrying 
all of the important material. Everything else is there to support the actor. The style, the frame, is very, it's very stylized, uh -huh. but it's only there to illuminate the actor within the moment and the, the relationships are carried by the actors, mm -hmm. not by the writers, not by the designers. Uh, you know, the soundscape that we have is fabulous mm -hmm. and it, it, it gives us so much, but it, yeah. it doesn't tell the story. The actors are telling the story yeah. and they're doing it through the subtext, which is very cool to that's, see. That's interesting and that's sort of, like I've always found it interesting after doing a show in the style of silent film, hearing other people interpret it <laughs> yeah and the little differences the, the the spaces that they fill in that aren't necessarily what we intended but it's an interesting it's mm. interesting to hear oh you think that's what it was about okay that's that's interesting yeah because they have to fill some things in yeah but it, they, the story still works even though there's to yeah. them but that like, that happens yeah. also in in scripted yeah. work mm -hmm. um <laughs> there's a story we like to tell on this last tour that we did <clears throat> where we we had a bunch of plays and they were scripted, so there was dialogue. Um, but uh, one of our actors met with his family after a performance, I think it was in Montreal anyway, and his family had come to see it. And they said, oh, that zombie character that you were playing was really strange. And he's like, that, I don't play a zombie in any of these shows. So, so there were still these yeah, weird yeah. interpretations of what the theater was because there is ambiguity of course yeah, yeah. Uh, and if and, and you know unless you're going to write a play without any ambiguity there's always going to be that differentiation of interpretation from different people well who would want and to who play would without want? ambiguity yeah yep. that's part yeah. of the fun and and yeah. if, if the audience isn't making their own interpretations then they're not really heavily engaged well so. that's that's also very true I mean uh, we see in a lot of movies where nothing is left to mm. for you know i'm going to explain we explain everything yeah so we don't take the chance of anybody not understanding what's happening here yeah, yeah and so we don't actually have to use our brains while watching the tv show or the or the uh the the movie or whatever it right. is and of course we enjoy something more when we have to when we have to think about it yeah um in terms of where because you you founded were the founding artistic director of, of Keystone Theater mm -hmm. and then you sort of you stepped back from that mm -hmm. um, and I think you returned to you're like thinking more about simple truth theater is that yeah right yeah so uh, uh, <clears throat> there are other projects that I, I really want to mm -hmm. pursue right now and they don't fit within the mandate of Keystone mm -hmm. They would fit within the mandate of Simple Truth Theater, right? Um, so Simple Truth Theater might be resurrected. Mm -hmm. uh, it might not because there might be other companies that are willing and able to produce those projects mm -hmm. without me having to be a producer, right. which I, is my which preference. Is, of course, it, of course. <laughs> I mean, um, so so that might that may not be needed, mm -hmm. um, but I, I want to. I want to start pursuing other projects. I'm, I want to change the pace at which I produce work. I want to produce work more slowly and more carefully. Hmm. I mean, apart from our first show with Keystone, which we took four years to develop. Uh, You've been getting faster. We've been getting a lot quicker. Yeah. Well, um, we took four years and then six months and yeah. then three months, I think. I think, yeah. So they get quicker and quicker. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I want to go back to not not so much um, 
a slower development, but less frequent mm. projects. Uh, mm. I want to freelance more in between, and I want to to pursue a couple of very particular projects that may take a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm teaching now, and I want to teach more. And I'm happy mm. to teach. If I could t get full-time teaching work, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, but right now, that's kind of my main endeavor, and that's a whole other mm -hmm. world that's really fascinating to me. How do you teach acting? Is it well, really that's, cool that's a very, subject. That's a very good <laughs> question. Um, how do you teach acting? Oh, wow. It's, um, it's very different with every student, mm -hmm. and that's part of what makes it so fun for me. Um, so again, it's, it's carefully not determining what, what a student needs until I really start to get a sense of what each student is trying to do. Um, so it, my style of teaching is very reserved. I think my style of directing is that way too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to hold back. I don't try to tell, I don't like to tell my actors what to do. I want to find out where they're going and then help them get there. And I'm that, it's that same instinct, I guess, that makes me want to teach. Do you think that the teaching is is uh, an extension of direct of directing? Like just just looking at the path that took yeah. you from actor to director to teacher. Yeah, I don't know that it's an extension, but it certainly comes from the same impulse. Mm. Like I think of. Um, the things that make me that that make me want to direct. Mm -hmm. The thing that I most enjoy when I'm directing is if I'm in I'm in a rehearsal hall with an actor who has an impulse and I can see that they have an impulse, but they're not able to fulfill that impulse for whatever reason. They have some blockage or they have or they're not aware of their own impulse yet. Uh, if I can help that actor free that impulse and achieve something, I don't even know what it is most of the time. Uh, but I can see that there's something else in there. If I can help that actor find what that thing is that we haven't yet found, that is that's the most rewarding thing for me. Mm. I don't I enjoy seeing a play I've directed, but that's not as as exciting to me as the moments where an actor goes, "Oh, I got it. That's the thing. Wow, that's great." So for me, empowering the actor is what makes me want to direct. And it's that same impulse that makes me want to teach. It's empowering the student. It's giving the student the chance to figure out what their own version of being an actor is going to be. That's very, very rewarding. That's very cool. When did teaching become something that that was on your path? Uh, well, it started, I think I had an, in, an inkling along the way. Again, sort of going back to classmates saying, you know, Richard, can you look at this? And I'd be, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's, let's, I'm happy to work on this with you. Um, so there was always an inkling kind of in the back of my mind, but it wasn't until uh, Renya Ivanovsky asked if I, if I would direct a show for Act Two Studio mm -hmm. out of Ryerson. And Act Two is, is a, it's a, pro a program for senior citizens. Yeah, who... for people who are 50 years and older. Yeah. So it's a theater program uh, for older folks. Um, but it's, very, it's a pretty serious theater program, mm -hmm. and we treat our students like serious theater students. Um, and they are. Mm -hmm. um, they just don't leave after three years. They stick around and keep, <laughs> keep taking more classes. So we can actually go further and further with them, right. which is really cool too. Um, mostly part-time studies, so it's not quite as intense as, a, as most sort of conservatory theater programs. 
but it's 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 fairly intense. Um, so Vrenya asked me to direct a show because she had seen some of my stuff at Shaw and was wanted to do a really big show and thought that uh, I would be able to handle a, a big cast. Um, and part of the directing the show involved teaching a course. Mm -hmm. And I've been teaching there ever since. So mm -hmm. I just kind of got hooked. And I think Vrenya has... Vrenya spotted that I was a teacher. Mm -hmm. Before you... Before I did, yeah. 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 And, yeah, she very cleverly insisted that I teach Zone of Silence work, uh, which I had no interest in teaching um, at the time. That, 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 that interests me. Um, <laughs> and Zone of Silence, um, of course, you and I... Who uh, who went to theater school and were, were taught by Peter Wilde? Yeah. You know that like that first half year, nobody <laughs> speaks because yeah. we're doing uh, exercises where where it's in the zone of silence. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that eventually you were working on a silent film. I know with the it's, zone of silence. Yeah, and then teach and then directing mime shows. Yeah. <laughs> well, were you resistant to teaching the zone of silence? Like when she suggested it, was it something that you were like, no? She suggested, and I thought, I have no idea how to teach that. I've like I've done it as a student mm -hmm. years and years ago, but I don't know how to teach it. Mm -hmm. And she said, Oh, I, th I think I think you could. <laughs> did you did you consult with anybody before you did it, or did no. you just like show up one day and I just that you were doing it? I just showed up, and uh, I mean, I, I crafted. A plan, mm. and then I, I showed up and did that the first year that I taught it, and I and I refined it and refined it and refined it over, over mm -hmm. time, um, and continue to. Um, but it didn't take that long to to figure out what my rhythm was within that kind of work too, mm. and I'm sure I don't teach it the way Peter does. I also am, have only taught it at Act Two, so I'm only working with people who are 50 years and older. Right. So they have a very different. They come in with a very different set of expectations than 19-year-olds will. What do you think their expectations are when they come in? Because I'm 19-year-old. Uh, I don't even want. Like I came in thinking that I was going to be the next big, big thing. Right. right. And and and, and when when a 19-year-old is told zone of silence, it takes a long time for the. Uh, like a, uh, the impulse to do something. Yeah, the impulse yeah. to do something to yeah. entertain your audience is huge. It takes a long time to get past that and get to the point where I'm engaging now in in an imagined world and I'm just in it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the first step of doing Zone of Silence is forgetting about, I'm not going to try to entertain, I'm just going to try to be in the imagined world. Mm -hmm. uh, with the older students, they can get there much, much more quickly. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think because they they come in with a they come in with less to prove mm. to themselves, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so they don't have to feel like they're entertaining, the way a young person does at that age, just out of high school. They they want to feel like they're important, so right? They, yeah. They need they there's a certain need for uh, for reassurance. Mm -hmm. uh, these. Uh, Older students tend not to have quite that strong a need for that. They come in with a much simpler and richer and fuller sense of themselves. Hmm. So to have them... And, and they also come in with less of an overt energy in their drive. They're not there to prove that they're superstars. 
they're there because they're really interested in what theater is. Mm -hmm. They're not there to be stars. They're right. there to engage with the artwork. Mm -hmm. So their momentum is very different. Mm. So to have them to say, okay, just sit there and don't do anything, they're pretty good at sitting there and not doing anything. Do you find they're more, they're more patient as students than, say, a 19-year-old? Yes, yeah. yeah. They're, more, they're certainly more patient. Uh, the difference is then that I have to provoke more to get them to get to the next steps right. where they're actually starting to engage with the concepts, the basic concepts of acting mm -hmm. where you have a moment before that in inspires some kind of emotional reaction mm -hmm. where you have, you want something from someone and that, that drives towards action. So the drive toward action requires more prompting, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. with these seniors. Mm -hmm. But I haven't taught the young, younger students yet. I, I might in January. That would be exciting. I'm, yeah, I'm I've been to, exciting. I'm pretty excited about the possibility. Especially, especially to now that you've like to do to teach it to the older group and now to see the, to see the difference yeah. with the younger group. That would be pretty exciting. I yeah, think. I think so too. Um, is there anything that you're working on that uh, you can talk about the specifics about? Anything coming up? Uh, there's a couple projects that we're trying to get the the wheels moving on. Uh, it takes a long time to get something going. Mm -hmm. um, the one project that I can sort of, I guess, talk about uh, is not moving yet, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I I hope it will. Mm -hmm. It's a, a translation of a Victor Hugo play. The play is called Le Roi Samuse. Mm -hmm. I call it The Fool in my translation. Uh, so translating is a whole new thing for me. It's mm -hmm. the first time I ever tried to translate a play, and I loved doing it. And once this one is done, I hope to do more. Can we talk about why you have why you're translating this play? Yeah, uh, it started out uh, again. Goes back to theater school mm -hmm. in a theater history class. Peter Wilde, our theater history teacher and, and teacher of everything, um, talked about this play, and the way he described it. I thought, oh, there, there might be a role in there for me, and I should look at this play and maybe get a monologue out of this. Uh, sounds like something I could play. And uh, <clears throat> the only version of the play that I could find was in French. So I read it in French, because I can do that. Uh, I can't write in French, but I can read it. And I thought, yeah, this is a great play, and this is a great role. Maybe the best role I've ever read. Mm. And I want to play it. But he was way too old for me to play at the time. Once I read the play, I realized, okay, this guy's, you know, mid-40s, probably-ish, you know. Uh, I'm 20 years old or 22 at the time. I'm thinking, I got a long time before I can play this. But I really like this play, and I really like this role. Someday I'm going to play this. And then I started looking for an English translation so that I could do it. Because uh, my French is not bad, but it's not great either. And, and I want to perform it in the language that I'm strongest in. And 20 years went by, and I never found uh, an English translation. Mm. And I'm starting to get now to the point where I'm soon going to be too old to play the part <laughs> instead of old enough. Right. So I thought, okay, well, if I'm ever going to do this, and this is kind of, it's become my life's ambition now right. is to play this role. If I'm ever going to do this, I have to translate it myself because I can't find it in English. Mm. So I did. I started translating it. And, and in the process, too, I have really, really become excited by Victor Hugo and his work and his plays. Mm. This play in particular, which I think is just, uh, it's so rich emotionally. Uh, 
it's a, it's a kind of theater that we've really moved away from in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's, uh, you know, Hugo was the leading edge of the Romantic movement before the Romantic movement became the sappy movement. Mm -hmm. It was the Romantic mm -hmm. movement. Yeah. And, and he takes the classical structure of classical and neoclassical theater and he gives it a real, um, a real edge in its characterization. So characters don't have to maintain f a fixed perspective on the world. Mm. They can change. Mm. It's a big revelation in, in neoclassical theater. And it, it begins the romantic movement. So you have a character who changes mm -hmm. through the course of the play. Uh, and he's inspired by the works of Shakespeare when he's writing it. So it's, it's very much like a King Lear meets the Bells of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. um, so it's got this, these really rich, weird uh, characters who have huge emotional lives, uh, lives and, and, and scope for, for huge emotion. Um, and, and I miss that in the theater today. Uh, so I got really excited by the play itself, and, and I really, really want to produce it mm. now. But it's another big show, and big shows are really hard to produce. Where are you in terms of translation? Because I know for a while back you had Act One translation. Yeah, well now I've got uh, what I would consider sort of a third draft of the the whole thing. Mm. So the whole play's been translated. Um, I wrote a first draft, which was a completion of the version that you were involved in reading. Mm -hmm, of. Mm -hmm. um, so I completed that, all of it in blank verse. Uh, taking some notes from the reading that we had, uh, I then mixed it up a little bit so that the court scenes are now in rhymed couplets. Uh, some of the more resonant emotional scenes are in blank verse, mm -hmm. and some of the more pedestrian scenes are in prose. Okay. So it shifts. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a big rewrite. And then after that, I got some more suggestions, and I've since streamlined the show a little bit it, well, I took it from five acts to four mm -hmm. I combined the last two acts um, I reduced the number of characters mm -hmm. in the hopes of making it producible because <laughs> <laughs> a play with 23, 24 characters is really hard to produce but a play with 10 or 11 mm -hmm. 10 or 11 easier. actors yeah. including the doubling is, is possible yeah. it's, still, yeah. it's still big still huge yeah. but it's possible mm -hmm. So I cut some of the characters. I moved a monologue from Act Two into Act One. Mm -hmm. uh, I changed the ending. I sort of brought some some of the loose ends together a little bit at the end. Um, so I, I've, I've done a bit of adjustment. And I did a reading of it last summer in Prince Edward Island with an, a company of actors there, and um, realized that I can no longer. Uh, work on it on my own mm. it needs to be workshopped it needs right. to be rehearsed before we know what works and what doesn't right because in a in a cold it's reading too, yeah it's too the the language is too structured so in a right. cold in a cold reading it's really hard to take advantage of rhymed couplets right. to know what the value is that you can use as an actor you need to rehearse it you yeah. need to look yeah. at it know it plan it think about okay what can i do with this and then what, so I need at least a week-long workshop, mm -hmm. I think. And, and through the week-long workshop, I think we'll really know what works and what doesn't. 
I think it'll take one more rewrite after that, and then hopefully it can we can mm. plan for a production cool. somewhere further down. I've got a very very good director who's reading it right now and has expressed interest in it. Nice, that's great. Who I probably can't mention in public. Probably not. But maybe next week I can mention <laughs> the name in public. We will, we will, we will. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. I mean, we all know that, that, that you know sometimes you're. Not free to talk about a thing. Yeah, um, but that's sort of the, the the that's the big big project that I'm kind of dreaming of. There's some other things that I'm working on. I might, I'm going to direct another show for Tottering Biped Theater, who I've done some work for mm -hmm. uh, next fall. That's a passion project of uh, uh, Trevor Cop, who's the artistic director. He's been working on that show for ten years. Mm -hmm. He's written thirteen drafts of the script. I took part in a couple of workshops with him. And now he wants me to direct it, so I'm pretty honored to, yeah. you know, he's kind of basically giving me his baby and mm -hmm. saying, here, take care of my baby for me. Uh, so I'm going to direct uh, Journey to the East. Nice. Um, but not a lot of creative work going on mm -hmm. at the moment. Uh, it's more pre-production and teaching. Yeah. So still, still a lot of, still a lot of stuff. Now you're yeah. not on on social media at all. I really am you're not. You're not on social media, uh, but you do have a website. I have a website, RichardBone.com. There we go. No L in bone. No L in Anybody bone. who didn't know anything about <laughs> and it's not the history B -O -N -E, of that name, it's, no, it's B E A U N E. It'll be it'll be in the show notes. But <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to like mention the lack of an L when nobody who heard that name would think of an L. Yeah, so, well, because there was one. Because there was one once. Well, and thanks I, so much I, for coming I, on. We're about at the end of our time. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun.